Thanks so much, guys. And just want to say uh, and add to Ben's welcome and just say so, it's so great that you're here this morning. So pleased you came out. You could have been doing anything you like in the sun, um, and yet you chose to came, come here to God's house to worship together. Um, and I'm confident as we look at God's word together that God will bless you um, for, for coming inside rather than being outside. Um, so I mean that. I really think you will. So we are coming to the end of our series in the book of 1 Peter, and, and we like to take, as our general approach to, to preaching, we like to take a, a book in the Bible and just work through it passage by passage and see what God's saying to us. So if you've been with us for a few months, you'll know since January we've been looking through this letter that Peter wrote to a bunch of dispersed Christians shortly after Jesus' time on earth. Um, and so we'll be finishing it off today. So we're going to be looking uh, at chapter 5, verse 8 onwards. If you have uh, a Bible or a mobile phone app or any other means of reading the Bible, perhaps a scroll. Um, and I'll read up to verse 11, and then at the end I'll, I'll cover off the rest of the verses. So from verse 8 in chapter 5, if you don't have anything, you can read behind me. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We begin our passage, you can keep up the verse if you want, um, verse 8 onwards. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. And if you've been tracking through with our series, you might recognize this kind of language from Peter. Matters of the mind and how we think about things is very important to Peter. And you'll see it not just in Peter's writing, but in the New Testament in general, that our minds are a very important place. I don't know if you're, I'm sure you're similar to me, actually, in, in thinking about what does a good Christian life look like. Often, if I notice something that I don't want to do or something that I do want to do, I then just focus all of my energy, instead of my mind, all in my actions. I'm going to try and stop doing that sinful thing that I want to see victory in, or I'm going to just try really hard to do that righteous and good thing that I want to do. But Peter here, once again, reminding ourselves through using language that he's used throughout the letter, things like preparing your mind for action. He's mentioned a few times already, being sober-minded, have a unity of mind, have a humble mind, even arm yourself with the same way of thinking. How we deal with our mind is a very important part of living a good Christian life. And we might be familiar, if we're Christians and have been for a bit of time, of things like, well, we need to know God, and we need to understand his ways and understand the great things that he has done for us. And then as a result of that, we are then to know ourselves in a different way and have our, our perspective on things changed. And so we know God and we know ourselves, but here... Peter is directing us to think of and know someone else. And so the title of my talk today is Know Your Enemy. Verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 
Now, to first know that we have an enemy, we first have to come to terms with the fact that we have an enemy. Because I don't think that we always like to think that there is someone out there seeking to destroy us, seeking to make our lives worse. It's an uncomfortable reality to, to know that there is someone in our lives that is trying to, actively trying to make our lives less well off. Up until um, a year or so ago, um, me and Hannah, we had some neighbours who, um, well, let's be charitable, they were slightly bothersome. Um, and they, I don't know if you've ever had bad neighbours, it's an absolute nightmare. They, they lived right next door to us, so we shared a wall with them. They would have dozens and dozens of friends over to their, uh, to their house in this fairly small place, and they'd get up to all sorts of mischief, they'd make so much noise, they would play like banging, pounding music roughly 25 hours a day. And, I mean, it wasn't even good music. If they'd chucked a bit of Taylor Swift in there, it would have been fine. But this is like some weird techno beats going on. They even turned one of their rooms, uh, their front room, into some like disco thing with like disco lights going. I mean, to be honest, it looked kind of fun if it wasn't right next door to you. Um, and this was us then also trying to do it. Like, we just had Jack since I had a newborn. Um, and so our neighbours, two doors down, actually, it was so bad. They, uh, they also shared a wall with these neighbours, posted on just December the 30th, two pairs of earbuds through our letterbox. Just a note, just saying, these are for tomorrow night, in anticipation of their New, Year, New Year's Eve blast that is bound to happen. And indeed, they did prove very helpful. Um, and so we started to get vibes that they weren't just doing all of this because they loved all of the party, but as we tried to get the council involved and police involved, that they were doing this as well to try and make our lives less pleasant. Um, and that was actually kind of confirmed then a few days later where they, uh, they actually broke off the wing mirror of one of our cars, uh, or of our cars. And I know, like, who could do that to a Nissan Leaf, right? I mean, it's just such a sad story. Um, which, I mean, that's, that's that bit. It's just, it's actually, it's horrible, isn't it? When that you know that someone is actively putting energy into making your life worse. And we don't like to live in that reality. And so then we translate this onto our concept of the enemy. And we will look for any other option to describe why there might be bad things happening in our lives. And so we'll put it down to just plain old random chance. Just the universe just isn't quite working in our way, that these bad things that come into our path or these temptations that we face, it's just random chance. Or maybe even we would ascribe it to something like karma. We just think, well, I did a good thing or I did a bad thing, and so then I got good in return or I got bad in return. Or if we were to think in maybe slightly more uh, biblical and Christian ways, we might just think, well, all of the bad things that I face, all of the difficulty in my life, is simply just because we're in a fallen and broken world. It was perfect, but then Adam and Eve, they ate the apple, and that was it. Now we're in a broken time. Now, of course, there is truth to that. But we must also recognize that we have an enemy that is working against us, however unpleasant it might be. And it's not just unpleasant, though. I think another part of the reason that we don't often like to think in these terms, particularly here in the West, um, and I know others of you from different cultures might, have, might be easier for you and it might be more natural for you to think in these terms. But for us, as Westerners, and uh, sort of very intellectual group of people, it's just plain weird, isn't it? Like, we don't like it because it is just a bit odd. I know you're thinking this. I know that it's, it's actually kind of one of the more embarrassing parts of Christianity. Am I right? 
I'm getting a few smiles, a few nods. I think we all agree on this. It's just not that comfortable. We're quite happy to own, or we might be quite happy to own in front of our friends. Yes, I believe in God. I believe he's sovereign. I believe he's perfect. He's wonderful. But when it comes to the devil, if someone says, do you believe in the devil? Like you, you think that the one with the fork, the big fork and the horns, you think he's real. We go a little bit sheepish. Like, oh yeah, kind of, maybe. This is not a new phenomenon. Back in 1940, a guy called C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, which you may or may not be familiar with. Um, and I'm going to read a little bit in a moment, just need to explain what the concept of the book is. It's, a, it's written to a junior devil... He's writing C.S. Lewis, knowing the Bible very well and knowing how the, the enemy and the devil likes to operate. And he's sort of written this fictional account of a junior devil receiving advice and tactical and strategy wisdom from a senior devil on how he can take out and damn the soul of this Christian person called the patient. Okay? So I'm going to read a little excerpt from the, from the book. Little bit oldie language, but I think you'll be all right. I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the, patients, the patient in ignorance of your own existence. Our policy, for the moment, is to conceal ourselves. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in the patient's mind, simply suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since you cannot believe in that, he simply, therefore, cannot believe in you. What this is meant to highlight is that the enemy loves to seem as absolutely unbelievable as he possibly can, as incredible or lacking credibility as much as he can. He loves to, if he can hide away and make us think that he's just some kind of cute comic figure and it's almost embarrassing to believe in him, so let's just not think about it, that's exactly how he loves to, to operate. And so what Peter is doing here in verse 8 is he uses evocative language and imagery of a prowling lion that is seeking to devour, that is roaring, is he's trying to bring to light something that is so real that we know he knows that the devil would rather be kept quiet. He's saying, look, this enemy is real, he's active today, and he wants to devour you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, essentially wake up. Because the enemy has not changed his approach and how he works since the very beginning of time. And we know exactly how he works when we, he's most effective when he is most hidden. And we see it in the book of Genesis um, when he first appears in the whole of Scripture. He comes and sidles up to Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent. And even there, he is hidden. Even there, he comes to Adam and Eve just like one of the created creatures in this perfect garden that they're living in. They don't know that a snake is evil. Like We know a snake is evil, but only from this story. They don't know that a snake is not good, so they're just like, hey, it's one of God's creatures that we haven't met yet. Oh, and he's talking. This is great fun. And 
But it's the, the snake, the serpent, the enemy coming up to them, seeking to devour and destroy them. And we learn that from, this, from the account in Genesis 3, he's not, the, the, he's not more powerful or more intimidating or more ferocious or even more evil than any other creature. The Bible describes him as more crafty than any other beast. And so he comes not in power and might, but he comes and just sidles up to them, draws alongside them, and simply asks a question. How bad can a question be, right? Did God really say that you can't eat any of that fruit? I thought God was loving. I thought God was kind. I thought he wanted good things for you. Like, would, it, would a good, kind God really put this delicious-looking fruit right in front of you and say you can't have that? And as he's asking these questions and, and making Adam and Eve for the first time think, oh, maybe God's way isn't the best way for me. As they're starting to come to terms with that, in perfect timing, the serpent then just rolls an apple. The serpent didn't have hands. Nudges an apple <laughs> with his head. Perfect timing right in front of them. And the temptation that he rolls in front of Adam and Eve and the temptation he always rolls in front of us always is with the same message. Don't you think this way is better than God's way? Wouldn't a good God let you have that? And of course, Adam and Eve, we know the story. It was dangled in front of them and they bit, quite literally. And see, the enemy has to work this way. Because if he had come to the garden in all of his evil and all of his ugliness and all of his embodying everything that he truly is, looking as, as powerfully profane and disgusting as evil really is, there is no way Adam and Eve would have gone for it. Because when you see evil for what evil really is, it is not an attractive option. It's not a tasty thing. You don't think, yes, it would have, the equivalent would be just the most rotten, ugly apple ever. They would never have gone for it. And it's the same with us. We would never be tricked by pure evil right in our face, looking at it square in the eye. And so the enemy works like this. He sidles up to us and comes alongside of us and just asks questions trying to undermine our concept of God. I thought God loved marriage. He does, doesn't he? Oh, and God's good and he loves you. So why hasn't he given you a husband yet? I thought God loved you. I tell you who would love you. This husband. And... Yeah, I know he's not everything that you thought you wanted. I know he's not quite perfect. I know he's very vague about whether he was a Christian or not and how he might treat you, but he'd love you. And this, you can apply it to any sort of circumstance, can't you? Any situation. What is the thing that the enemy just rolls in front of you as he's asking, getting you to question who God is? What's the apple that he rolls in front of you that seems to... And he's always phrasing it as, wouldn't a good God let you have that? And these things, 
his ways, they're, they're clever, they're devious, but they're always evil. They're always, never, never, never do they have our best interests at heart. They're always seeking to devour us and to destroy us. And so this is why Peter is so clear. He said, be sober-minded, be watchful, be aware of how he works. These things are not the work of a vague force of evil or the concept of evil. These things are not just because you live in a broken world. It's not solely because of those things. This is because there is a personal being getting you to question these things and then putting temptation in your path. Now, at this stage, you may very fairly be thinking, Langan, you are laying on very thick this evening, this morning. You're really like, this is not a very light-hearted summer, end-of-term kind of feel for a talk. Like, it's summer, come on, lighten up. Just to take a step back, Peter, the purpose of his letter is to Christians who, and everything that he's writing is with the purpose of encouraging and loving and helping them live a better, more perfect Christian life. And so we know that from from reading these things, our life is made better, even though they might be tough for us to grapple with, than if we didn't know these things. And so he's bringing this to light. And you might think, okay, well, where is this help? Where is this encouragement that you're promising, Duncan? Next two words. What have we got? Verse number nine, resist him. These are good words. Because with everything that we have just said about who the enemy is, his power, his ugliness, how he is working actively to try and take us down, we don't then read the words, fear him. Do you know what the Bible never says? Never says to fear the enemy. Because we don't have to. We can resist him. It doesn't say for us to run and hide doesn't say that we should just run as quickly as we can and hope that we're not one of the ones that gets picked off, the weak member of the herd. Most of you will get it through. He says, he doesn't even say try to resist him. Doesn't say give it your best shot. He says every single one of you, you can resist him. This is why you don't have to fear him, because every single one of you has the power and the strength to resist him. And I don't care, well, I do care, well, it doesn't matter how vulnerable you feel right now. It doesn't matter if you think, well, I am the weak one. I am going to get picked off. You can resist him. This is the promise of this verse. We first have to know our enemy before we can then recognize we're in a battle with him. Once we know our enemy, we realize, well, because there's someone against us, we are in a fight. And this is a continual theme in the whole of the New Testament, that as Christians, our life is a battle. And notice I didn't say our life is like a battle. We're not in the realm of imagery and metaphor here. The reality is every single day of our lives as believers is a battle that we fight. It's not a battle we see. It's a spiritual battle that we're in every single day. We have an enemy. We're in a fight. But here is some very good news It is a battle and a fight that we can win. And so we're going to look at three ways that we can win this battle. Firstly, verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. The first way that we win is that we look up. Resist him firm in your faith. What are you standing firm in? Faith is simply 
putting your trust in something outside of yourself. Something or maybe someone. And this follows, as if you were here last week, you would have heard Tim speaking on humility and Peter previously making the point about we need to clothe ourselves with humility. Well, this is a direct continuation of that. Do you, are you willing to say, I cannot do this all myself, I need someone else? Because that is true humility. Are you willing to say, I need someone else to fight this fight for me? I do not have the strength myself to take on this powerful foe, but I know that I can get strength from someone else to do the fighting for me. Because I think particularly in areas of temptation, we often have a tendency to think, you know what, I've got this. Like, I've made a bit of progress and God has helped me out to, to, for a bit of breakthrough in this particular area. But from here on, I've got it. I'm fine. Do you know, an attitude of self-sufficiency to sin management and temptation management is the most vulnerable place we can be. I know this from personal experience. The moment that I think, oh, I'm doing quite well in this area of fighting this battle, that is when the enemy knows perfect time to just roll a great juicy Granny Smith right in front of me. And I'll always bite. But the moment that I am on my knees, crying out to God every single day, saying, Jesus, I cannot do this, but your grace in me can. In myself, I am weak, but your grace is sufficient for me. And in my weakness, I am strong through, the, through your power. And we join with Paul in saying, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is when we're able to fight the fight. And if I can just very briefly just speak to the men in the room. You are not the hero of your story. We have grown up with this narrative that it is the woman who needs rescuing. And it is the man that does the rescuing. We then think as men, well, we need to be the ones that are proving ourselves. We need to establish ourselves on the battleground. We need to show that we have enough strength to be the one that does the rescuing. Man, general, is not the rescuer. There is one man who is the rescuer. And if your name is not Jesus Christ, you need help. And the sooner you can admit that you need help, the sooner that you can admit that you need strength from somewhere else from, that doesn't come from within, that is the moment that you will receive all of heaven's authority to help you, all of heaven's power to strengthen you in the fight. Peter himself has said it in his own, earlier in the letter, by God's power, you are guarded by faith. Only through faith do we receive the guarding and the power that we need. All right, that's point number one. We look up. Secondly, we look around. Second part of verse nine. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Do you know what this means? You are not fighting alone. This is one of the most evil lies that the enemy comes alongside of us and gets into our heads. You're on your own. This is a fight you've got to fight on your own. This is a unique challenge. What you are going through, no one else would understand. They wouldn't get it. 
If everybody, do you, if everybody knew what you were going through, that you're still fighting that sin, you'd go back to that person and say you're still struggling, that you think you would be filled with shame. That's a lie from the enemy. He loves to get in because then it means that you try and fight that fight on your own. And as you continue to try and fight on your own, you withdraw and isolate yourself from community. Remember what it says in verse 8? The enemy is looking for someone to devour. You know what that means? He knows he can't take us all as we're together. He can't take on the whole group of us. So what does he love to do? He likes to isolate. He likes to make us feel like we are on our own. He likes to divide and conquer. That is his plan. He likes to try and remove us away from our brothers and sisters. It's why he hates church. And it's why he loves division and disunity and disharmony within the church. And so do you know what that means? As a church, we have to fight for unity. We have to intention, be intentional about serving one another and loving one another and putting one another first and forgiving one another and, and choosing to believe the best about one another. Not because it's a nice Christian thing to do, but because it stamps on the head of the enemy. He hates it. He can't stand it. He can't do anything against it. So every time we are pouring coffee and serving it to someone else, we are pouring scalding hot liquid on the head of the enemy. Every time we invite someone through to, around to our house, we are enriching our own home and enriching our community, and we are plundering the house of the enemy. Every time we welcome someone and shake their hand, we're, I don't know, punching the enemy in the face. He hates when we are together, so let's fight for it. And do you know what else it means? that as you resist in your daily personal struggles every single day, you are strengthening not just yourself, all of us, every single person. You are having a benefit to all of your brothers and sisters, not just here in the 11 o'clock meeting, but also the 9 o'clock, also our 7 o'clock, also our 12 o'clock on our Wednesday. And King's Church in Birmingham, you're strengthening them every time you say no to the apples that, the, that God rolls in front of, uh, not God, Satan, rolls in front of you. You're strengthening our brothers and sisters in Malawi. Genuinely, this is really a spiritual reality. You are fighting battle with them every time you say no to the enemy and you choose God's way. And you might be thinking, oh, I'd love to serve Revelation Church Manchester as we go and plant it. Or do you know how you can? Resist the enemy. When you're at home on your own and you think, no one would know if I gave in to that temptation now. No one would know. Maybe God would, but I think I can live with that. If you don't resist for your own sake, do it for us. Do it to strengthen us, please. So we look up, we look around, and finally, we look ahead. Verse 10. After you have suffered a little while the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After you have suffered a, these two words are great, a little while. Do you know what those words mean? There's an end to this fight. Because this fight is exhausting. Being in a battle daily Having to say no to sin, no to temptation, it is an exhausting fight. And I'm sure many of you who have lived longer with the Lord than I have are thinking, yes, 
It is a fight. It really is a battle. God is so delighted in, in you fighting the fight. And what he's promising to you here is that this fight, this daily ongoing struggle with your foe is coming to an end. There is a day that it will end. How can Peter be so confident? How does he know? Is he just playing the odds? He's just thinking, well, one day it must. No, he is saying it because this is a reality fixed and secured by an event in history. The day that the enemy thought that he had won, as we were singing about earlier, the day where he thought that his kingdom had been established and the day where he thought, I have killed the Son of God. I have led Jesus to the cross and he is now finished and defeated. That was the day that the enemy thought that he'd won, that darkness thought that it had had its victory, but Jesus showed it was the great reversal. That was the day where it says in the Bible, Jesus struck the enemy with the sword and he is now, he might be a prowling lion, he might be a roaring lion, but he is a wounded lion. He knows his time is numbered. Since the events of the cross and the resurrection, the enemy has been in a place of defeat He's trying to cause as much chaos as he can now because he knows that there is a day coming where his activity is completely finished because he will be destroyed himself. There is a day coming where Jesus himself is coming once more, riding on a white horse, holding a sword in his hand, and he is going to throw the enemy into a, a lake of fire and sulfur and meet out final justice, and the enemy will be put to an end. That will be a great day, brothers and sisters, because it will be a day when sin and darkness and pain will be no more. It will be banished from creation and our enemy will be defeated. I can't wait because I hate him. We don't use that word very often as Christians and we shouldn't, but for him we can. I hate him. I hate what he does to me. I hate what he does to us and our relationships. I hate that I we'll now have to bring up two boys in this world knowing that there is someone out there seeking to destroy them when all I want to do as a dad is protect them. But I can't do anything in and of myself, but I know someone that can. And so when people ask me, well, why do you love Jesus? It's because of this. Because he has destroyed my enemy. He has dealt him a mortal wound. And he has promised he's coming back to finish the job off. This is what makes Peter say in verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Because he, there is a day coming where his kingdom will be fully established. And there will be no room for any opposition. And there will be no war. And there will be no strife. Why is that important? Well, because of the certainty of our future, we can draw strength today. Peter says, you have suffered a little while, but after that, the God who has called you to his eternal glory will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He says you're suffering just for a little while. And he doesn't say that at all to try and diminish the reality of your suffering but he wants to put it in its rightful place in your eternal story. That it stands next to your, your small window of suffering is small because it stands next to an eternity where he is strengthening, restoring, confirming and establishing you. He wants you to know the overabundance and the richness of everything 
that you stand to inherit. And so I must at this point plead with you, if you do not yet know Jesus for yourself, if you don't know that this is the way that you're following, that, that you are following Jesus into glory, I must please ask you to consider whether you should. Because Peter's very clear that our time on earth that we share together is just a little while, just a short time of our whole story. But it's so significant in determining where we spend our eternity. And we either, there are only two ways that we can go. Either we do follow Jesus into eternal glory, or we follow for eternity the same fate as the devil. And so my plea and my offer is that just today, one prayer, one decision, one moment, and you can move from darkness into light. You can go home knowing your forever is with Jesus in glory. So we look up, we look around, and we look ahead. That is how we can win this battle. And Peter finishes his letter like this. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who's at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Just like the recipients of this letter, we have an opportunity for huge kingdom impact. Although we might feel small, we can do so much in this city. But just like these, the recipients of this letter, we sometimes face all kinds of different sufferings for aligning ourselves with God. And we face even sometimes persecution for choosing his way. But the enemy knows that we are an effective, powerful force in the army of God. And so he would love to devour us. He would love to take us down. But because we are, un- we are aware of him, because we know how he operates, because we know that he is present and working today, that allows us to be able to resist him, to come up against him. We look up, we look around, and we look ahead.